since the end of April, our church has been going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the part of the Bible that tells the story of the origins of the church. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been going through Acts chapter 16. And we've seen that for those of us who have declared allegiance to King Jesus, those of us who give Jesus our total loyalty, who love him with all of our hearts, that we have some incredible privileges. And in particular, we have the incredible privilege of divine guidance in the decisions we make. One of the things that makes a human a human is that we don't just operate by instinct. We make decisions. What classes do I take? What groups do I join? You get to college, you decide on a major. What career should I pursue? Should I get married? And if so, to whom and when? And then the choices, they just keep coming at us. Is this the right person to hire? Is this the right time to let this person go? Am I giving the right amount of freedom to my child? Is this the right person to confide in? Some, some of our decisions are really small, fairly inconsequential, but some decisions are huge. There are these moments in life where we face decisions that are so serious that you feel like everything in your life that is to come, all of your future, you feel like it's just clamping down on you in that moment. But one of the great joys, one of the great privileges of being a Christian is that God offers us the incredible gift of guidance. Two weeks ago, we saw in Acts chapter 16, the first paragraph, the first six verses, that one of the primary ways God guides us when we're making decisions is through wisdom. Very often, find the wisest choice, and you've found the divine choice. That's God's will. And then last week, in the second paragraph of Acts chapter 16, we saw that when it comes to making decisions, not only should we pursue wisdom, we need to be open to supernatural surprises. Children of the king, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, we have received the gift of God's presence deep inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the empowering presence of God deep within your soul. And there are times when God, through His Spirit, speaks to us, guides us. Not only through wisdom, but there are moments when it's it's more of a supernatural intervention. Maybe a gentle nudge or calm assurance or a a specifically Spirit-given dream, a powerful urge or an unyielding sense of calling. So when it comes to making decisions, God offers guidance, and His guidance is typically in the form of wisdom. So a mantra that I think we should live by as children of the King and the kingdom is this. When it comes to making decisions, pursue wisdom, always stay open to supernatural surprises. This morning, we get to the rest of Acts chapter 16 and the first bit of Acts chapter 17. And thanks, Andrew. 
for reading that to us, wherever you are. I always pronounced it Thessalonica, but you read so well, I'm convinced that your way is right. <laughs> it's remarkable what, what you did, a, a tremendous feat of public reading. We needed this. We needed to hear all of Acts chapter 16 and the first part of chapter 17 because it would be a mistake to move away from the subject of decision-making without considering where their divinely guided decisions led them. We've got to pay attention to what happens to Paul and his friends when they obey God's supernatural intervention telling them to go somewhere they hadn't planned to go. Did you notice that after God gave Paul a vision, a dream, to go to this area of the world, Macedonia, and tell the story of Jesus there, did you notice that they not only obeyed it, they they obeyed immediately And at first they had a remarkable success. Lydia, I I love how it says, look at Acts chapter 16, verse 14, the end of it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, come to my house and stay. I love this notion that when God opens people's hearts, they begin to open up their homes. They take on the generosity of the Trinity. This generous dangerous, vulnerable expressions of love. Great success. And then things get weird. We get this exorcism business. Verses 16 to 18. And that's weird, but then things get difficult. A riot. Paul and Silas are abused by a mob. Only one time in my life have I been in the midst of a mob, and I was terrified. I um, lived in England for a while, and I would ride um, a train from Cheltenham to Chester once a month. And one time, um, I missed a stop, and I ended up riding this train all over England on my way home. And one of the routes led to Liverpool, and there had just been a soccer game. And the train suddenly flooded with drunk soccer fans, not all for the same team. There were only two people on the train car I was on that weren't soccer fans, me and a woman. And we were jammed into this car late at night with very drunk, riotous people. And I got scared for my life. Things got ugly. Police ended up coming on. I think that you shouldn't underestimate what happens when a mob seizes somebody. They get drug to the judge who doesn't help. He orders the police to beat Paul and Silas. And when, once they're finished abusing Paul and Silas, beating them, they then throw them into jail where they're abused some more. And when they finally get out of that situation, they go to this other city, Thessalonica, and a similar thing occurs. 
So they sneak out of that city and go to another city, Berea, where it happens again. Why? I mean, think about the big picture here. Divine guidance. One of the great privileges. But you also have to get to the end of chapter 16 and say, but is it really a privilege? I mean, look what it leads to. Why does this happen? We learn in the beginning of Acts chapter 16 something about life in the kingdom. We learn that God guides us when it comes to making decisions. But then what are we learning at the end of chapter 16 and in chapter 17? It's this. We are learning that delighting in the will of God and walking in His ways will at some point lead to suffering. Because that is the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom is not only divine guidance, supernatural um, leadership, the Spirit of God within you, but you've got to take the whole story. You can't be triumphalistic here. You've got to take it all very seriously. And you see that the nature of the kingdom also involves very painful suffering if you obey God. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 20. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Jump over to chapter 17. Look at verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Why does delighting in the will of God and walking in His ways and letting Him guide you, why does this lead to suffering? Because it's the nature of the kingdom. Because to be in the kingdom of God is to be on a collision course with society. What we see here The accusation made against them is that they've been on this collision course with the Greco-Roman culture. Christianity, you see, is nothing short of a total way of life. It's a new culture, a new society, right in the midst of the existing society. Something about Christianity collides with the fundamental stability of the societies within which it exists. The kingdom of God grows in a town. The local converts, the missionaries, are beaten and put in prison and put on trial, thrown in harm's way, harassed, mocked, And then driven out of the city. It happens in chapter 14 in Lystra. It happens in 16. It happens in 17. We're going to see it happen again in 19. It happens so much that if you're reading this purely as literature, you should at least say, oh, there's a theme here. What is going on? 
Christianity is incompatible in the book of Acts with some key features of Greco-Roman society. Go over to chapter 26. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's telling about his conversion to Christianity. And notice what he says in verse 15. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to, and this is the key part, open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. This is why being led by God will at some point, sooner or later, lead to profound suffering. Darkness and light. Satan and God. There is a battle in this world. There is a spiritual warfare between Christ and Satan. There is a spiritual conflict that pervades everything. It cuts across all of life. It's running, it's a running encounter between two opposing forces. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. For example, listen to another thing Paul said. This is in his letter to to the Galatians. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Opposition. Conflict. There is a fundamental spiritual opposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. There is a war between the lamb and the beast. And elitely educated white Americans don't believe it. But most of the world today and for most of time, has had no doubt about it. That there is a reality science cannot measure that is real. That there really is darkness. And there really is a quasi-personal force of evil that has personality and intention. A few years 
after the events in Acts chapter 16 and chapter 17, the, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to another group of people, not the Christians in Galatia, which I just read his letter, but to the Christians in a place called Ephesus. He deals with this thing I'm trying to describe. Listen to what Paul says at the end of his letter to the Ephesians about this issue. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a fundamental spiritual opposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, a war between the lamb and the beast. Paul is showing us here that there is more to reality than physics can account for. There is a multidimensionality to reality. A reality that is more than we can see and feel and taste and touch. A reality that is charged with the supernatural. There's a dimension of evil in our world that cannot be explained by Freud talking about sex or Marx talking about money or Nietzsche talking about power. There is a deeper dark force. Evil has a hidden dimension. There is more than meets the eye to our sufferings. There's a force to evil that seeps into society and companies and organizations and legislative bodies and universities and churches. And sometimes it works through power structures and sometimes it works through individuals. And when you read the Gospels over and over, you see that the deep Darkness is what Jesus is really dealing with. And it's slimy. And it's nameless. And it's scary. And it's formless. It's in the conflicts that surround Jesus. It's in the political and religious leaders that orchestrate and sanction and carry out Jesus' brutal death. The, the, The government said he was innocent and then killed him. That's evil. When the justice system fundamentally fails and execute, executes innocent people and bombs innocent villages, what I'm saying is that behind the people there is a force that we can't chalk up to ignorance. There was a moment when one of the most educated nations the world has ever known voted for the final solution. How do you account for this? That that exposes the lie of education as a savior. 
the real enemy to be met head on in Jesus' life by the power and love of God was an anti-creation power. A power of death and destruction and corruption and decay. So Acts chapter 26, the message of the Creator and Savior to our world is an invitation to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that you can receive forgiveness and a place among those sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see... When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not just talking about an idea. We're talking about a realm. And there's another realm. And there's a battle. And there's real power. We're talking about evil as a force. The reason that following God's will, receiving his guidance, whether it's through general wisdom or supernatural surprises, the reason that delighting in God's will and walking in his ways and making decisions that please him and obeying him, the reason this will at some point lead to profound suffering, physical suffering, economic suffering, social, religious suffering, Psychological suffering. The reason is because there is a fundamental fact about reality. God's kingdom is light. Evil exists. It doesn't like the light. And it is real. This battle. And it plays out through flesh and blood. That's why Paul in Ephesians says we don't battle against flesh and blood. The reason he says it is because you most of the time think that's what's happening. He's saying to these people, look, when it's a judge sitting in judgment over you, it's not always the government, the judge, your enemy, your parents, your betrayer, your institution, that there are moments in life Where if you could unzip the veil, you could see the other side of the story. To walk in the light, no matter what age you are, is to become an enemy of the darkness. And darkness is no respecter of age. Darkness will reach out for a child. (laughs) We're talking about evil. Right? We're not talking about a conscience waiting until age-appropriate destruction. A criminal defense lawyer in our church emailed me a week or two ago. It struck me, Aubrey, listening to Acts over the past months, and especially chapter 16 this morning, hearing of Paul and Silas's imprisonment, that at some point our churches in this cultural moment need to develop a theology of getting fired. Our folks are much more likely to get fired than imprisoned under the emerging speech codes. Not sure what Acts is talking, what God is talking to you about in Acts, but that's what's been jumping out at me. Have a great Sunday. As your pastor, 
There are a number of people in our church right now, like Paul and Silas, who are being ravaged by evil. There's a young person in our church who is going through the trauma of being lied about in middle school. There's a family in our church going through the most painful suffering and trauma I can imagine. There are people in our church who are experiencing injustice in a court system right now. So what do we do with this? How do we handle it when evil reaches out and cuts right through our life? Go back to Acts chapter 16. Look with me at Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This was a passage I was preaching on in Cheltenham, England, when Silas was born. And this is why we named him Silas. We want him and us to be the kind of people who can sing at midnight in the Garden of Evil. How? How did they do this? Where where is this faith and this hope and this love? Where is it coming from? I, I think this is the most difficult thing in the passage to comprehend. I think this is more difficult to comprehend than the crazy demon possessed fortune telling girl. You see, I, I think some of us believe in the supernatural, but our challenge is to believe. What these guys are believing in this moment that enables them to sing. The reason Paul and Silas are singing with faith and hope and love at this moment is because they believe something. Not in their heads, but in their hearts. They really, and and, and what I mean by that is that they, they see the world through this belief. In John chapter 12, don't don't turn there, just in John chapter 12, not long before he's crucified, Jesus is having a conversation with some folks and he makes this comment. Now comes the judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler is going to be thrown out when I have been lifted up. Lifted up, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about that he's going to be laid down, nailed to a piece of wood, and then it's going to be raised up into the air. Somehow, Jesus is lifting up. His crucifixion is being lifted onto a cross. Somehow, that historical event, that action, somehow that will constitute, he's saying, the victory of God over evil. So when we look at suffering, Lift your eyes to the cross-shattered Christ. That is the sovereign creator dealing with evil. 
But how? How can this be? How can the horrible, ugly, and brutal execution of Jesus Christ be the defeat of evil? Well, that's a deep mystery. But at the heart of it is that on the cross, Jesus drew upon himself the full weight of evil. Here is Jesus Christ, God himself, in the flesh and on the cross. All the strands of evil throughout human history, throughout the ancient biblical story, they come rushing together. From the demons shrieking at him in the synagogue, to the sneering misunderstanding of the power brokers, to the frailty and folly of his friends and followers at the cross, all the powers of evil are gathered against Jesus for one last battle, one last attempt to thwart the good purposes of the Creator God to pull the whole cosmos into a black hole, to pull the whole cosmos and the human race down into the depths of non-life, of anti-creation, of decay and suffering. But in the crucifixion, in some divine judo move, God pulls all of that to himself and then throws it into the black hole. The concentrated calamity of the cosmos. There is God himself hanging on the cross, sucking the wounds and the pain and the evil (coughs) of the world into himself. And he kills it. And so, in our gospel reading, when we hear Jesus from the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, (coughs) when we hear him say, it is finished, it's not a death gurgle. It's not, I'm done for. It is finished is the victory cry. Of the battle of God against evil. It is finished. Is the triumphant cry that the creator of the world has dealt evil its final blow. So how can Paul and Silas sing in a moment like this? It's certainly not because they're naive. No, their song is not inspired by some Pollyanna view of the world. They are not under any illusion about the continuing effect and power of evil after the cross. Like so many of you, they know full well that evil still has tooth and claw. And all too often, it leaps out and snarls at us. And snares us. Paul and Silas know firsthand that evil is turning gardens into deserts and human lives to dust and ashes still today. They know that evil continues to rage after the cross. And yet they know something else. Sitting in that prison cell, suffering from the ravages of evil, they knew that that is not the last word. They knew that evil is has been defeated on the cross. That the cross is the victory. 
that on the cross our sins were consumed. And when we are suffering from evil, when you are suffering, when it is midnight in your life, and you have been beaten, and your feet are in stocks, when that happens to you, look to the cross. Evil is doomed. It's been defeated. And there is coming a day when its final overthrow will occur and we will live in a world without evil and without even the memory of evil and without any of the vestiges of evil. All gone. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And until that day arrives, when Christ returns and death is no more, until then, as children of the King, we have the powerful, indwelling presence of His Spirit. And when we look to God for guidance in the many decisions that we face, and when a decision we make under the guidance of God, whether it's through wisdom or supernatural intervention, when one of those decisions leads to suffering, we should not be surprised. We should not think, oh, I must have made a wrong turn. There is a very real battle that is going on in the world today. It is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And when we walk in the will of God, there will come a moment where we walk right into suffering. And we can, like Paul and Silas, learn how to draw down on the life of God so that we too can sing in faith and hope and love, even at midnight. Let's pray.